0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and
1: NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Last week was the deadliest seven-day period for avalanche deaths in the U.S. in more than a century. On today's show, we'll get the why behind the increase in danger.
2: No one has died from misidentifying a snow crystal.
1: We'll have
3: more on that. Plus, we'll learn about the regional origins of a right-wing group federal officials say took part in the January 6th insurrection.
1: That and more coming up.
3: You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
1: And I'm Erin O'Toole. On December 29th, Colorado became the first state in the U.S. to announce the discovery of a variant case of the coronavirus. Since then, public health officials have confirmed a total of 53 variant cases in the state.
3: To help us understand more about these variants of the virus, we are joined by Dr. Rachel Herlihy, state epidemiologist for the state of Colorado. Dr. Herlihy, welcome to Colorado Edition.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Tell us about how the first coronavirus variant was
4: detected in Colorado. In late December, so really starting around December 20th, we started looking in earnest for these B117 or UK variants in the state. It was at that time that we were starting to hear more from the UK about the widespread transmission of the variant there, this B117 variant. And and they also were reporting that they were seeing this unique signal on the PCR test that we use to routinely test individuals for COVID-19. One of the types of PCR tests that's available, they were noticing showed this unique signal called an S dropout profile, meaning that a certain part of the test failed while the rest of the test worked. And so knowing that we were doing this testing and had this same testing platform at the state lab in Colorado, we decided to start looking in detail at the specimens that we were receiving at the state lab to see if we could identify any with this S dropout profile.
3: Well, and for people who may not be super plugged into the world of public health, what can you tell us about these variants that you think is important for us to understand? I understand that they may be more likely to spread or spread quickly.
4: So at this point right now, we are tracking two different categories of variants. We have what we call variants under investigation, and then we also have variants of concern. The variants of concern are variants that we have determined internationally have the potential to either spread more easily, cause more severe disease, Um, perhaps go undetected by a routine testing. They might make treatment less effective or vaccine less effective. There's a whole number of characteristics that could result in a variant being labeled a variant of concern. The other category is these variants under investigation. And those are really the variants that we're still studying, really trying to understand whether or not they might have concerning characteristics.
3: Are you at all concerned about Sort of a new wave of coronavirus outbreaks caused by these variants?
4: Because some of these variants that we are identifying, including the B117 or UK variant, have the potential to spread more easily, there is the potential that these types of variants could cause more cases. So, if on average we believe that a typical COVID 19 infected individual spreads the virus to two other people, a uh, more transmissible virus might mean that a person, instead of spreading it to two people, spreads it to three or four people.
3: Well, and of course, we know that these variants sort of arrived in Colorado at a time when our state is trying to get the vaccine out to people. What can you tell us about the vaccines that are available and how they interact with these variants? Should we be concerned on this front or is it too soon to tell?
4: At this time, we don't have concerns about the variants that we've identified here in Colorado and vaccine effectiveness. So. The variants we've identified in Colorado are the B117 or UK variant, and then another variant that is actually a variant under investigation called L452R. Neither of those variants have been associated with a decrease in vaccine effectiveness, but there are variants elsewhere across the globe that have been associated with some degree of decreased vaccine effectiveness. One of those is a variant that's been identified in South Africa. Another is a variant that's been identified in Brazil. And there have been some data to suggest that there is a a small decrease in vaccine effectiveness associated with those variants.
3: Even after the majority of the people in the world get the vaccine, we'll still be living with COVID-19. It'll still be here like the other coronaviruses, MERS and, and SARS. With that in mind, is there a chance that these COVID-19 variants or future variants might require us to get a booster shot or, or something like that?
4: There's quite a bit we still need to learn about COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccines and our immune response to the infection. You know, there's some limited data that suggests that most people are probably going to have some level, um, a significant level really, of protective immunity at least eight months out from an infection. And so we also expect that most people should have sustained protection from a vaccine for many months. I think the the questions that remain are how long that protection might last. And so it is possible that booster doses might be needed at some point, either because at some point our immunity might wane from the vaccine and, and we see this with other infectious diseases where you need to routinely get booster shots. Or the other possibility is if these variants become more common, specifically some of the variants that have shown to have decreased vaccine effectiveness, then we might need slight changes in the vaccine over time. So, similar to what we we do with influenza, where the vaccine sort of needs to keep up with what strains are of the virus are circulating. So we could potentially be in a place like that. but but, I think really, it's too soon to know um, whether we're going to need those types of booster doses and what that frequency might look like.
3: Dr. Rachel Hurley he is the state epidemiologist for Colorado. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. On Monday, the state reopened the window for Coloradans without health insurance to enroll in coverage through the Connect for Health Colorado online marketplace. This follows an executive order signed by President Joe Biden to reopen enrollment on the Affordable Care Act exchanges. Colorado's Insurance Commissioner Michael Conway told us this is an effort to address those people who have lost their employer-based health insurance due to the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: But it's that safety net for folks um, so that they don't have to be completely reliant on their employer for health care coverage. When something like this happens, they have a place to land. Um, so from that vantage point, it's a great thing and it's an incredibly reassuring thing.
3: Conway is part of a group of state insurance commissioners that urged the Biden administration to open up the special enrollment period. The president did so as part of a package of healthcare-related executive orders in late January. Colorado's open enrollment window runs until May 15th.
1: As the U.S. Senate gears up for the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump, they'll be considering whether he should be held responsible for aiming a mob of his supporters at the U.S. Capitol last month. Federal officials continue to scrutinize a number of right-wing groups that took part in the January 6th insurrection. And as Madeleine Beck reports for KUNC, at least one of them was founded in the Mountain West region.
5: Three known members of the anti-government group The Oath Keepers were the first to be charged with conspiring to commit violence just a couple of weeks after the riot. But this group didn't start in D.C. or even on the East Coast. A man named Elmer Stewart Rhodes was in Montana when he started The Oath Keepers in 2009. Sam Jackson researches political conflict and wrote a book about the organization.
3: The group was really organized around this perception that the federal government is increasingly tyrannical.
5: Jackson says the Oath Keepers formed as the patriotism of 9-11 was wearing off. Its name is based on the oath that members of the military and police swear to, specifically the bit about protecting the Constitution.
2: And of course, Rhodes and his friends had very specific understandings of what it means to keep that oath and, and what sorts of enemies to the Constitution there were that that people needed to worry about.
5: The group rallies around conspiracies about the deep state and government officials. Hillary Clinton has been a frequent target. Today, COVID-19 and mass voter fraud are major talking points. Right-wing media organizations that thrive on conspiracy theories and false narratives have helped drive the outrage. Take the media outlet InfoWars, founded by conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. I'm Alex Jones, your host, Stuart Rhodes, riding a shotgun with us. Jones recently had Rhodes on his show where they talked about an alternate reality. Rhodes warned that Chinese communists were working with President Joe Biden to sever all lines of communication in the U.S.
6: What patriots should be doing is in their own towns and counties... Coming together, squaring away their comms, getting CB radios, ham radios. The Montana Human Rights
5: Network tracks and counters disinformation from groups like militias and white supremacists. Rachel Carol Rivas is with the nonprofit. She says the Oath Keepers are dangerous specifically because they're influencing members of the military, veterans and the police.
0: The Oath Keepers, quite frankly, have taken that legitimacy that law enforcement offers and they've manipulated it to give credit to a movement that is otherwise, you know, counter completely to what it means to be leaders in a nation, in a, in a county, in a, in a city, in a state.
5: That said, Carol Rivas is hopeful the U.S. can push these ideologies back to the fringe. Still, she says the January 6th insurrection will have an effect. Some folks will be emboldened, but other
0: folks will be um, shocked and potentially um, deterred because it's one thing to fantasize about doing it. It's another to actually go to jail.
5: But Carol Rivas says just one person following this ideology can still pose a threat. She points to the 80s when law enforcement started cracking down on militia groups and there were successful lawsuits against white nationalists. One of those suits took aim at a guy named Louis Beam Jr. who just came up with another tactic.
0: He started advocating for the leaderless resistance, the cell strategy, and the lone wolf strategy.
5: Basically splitting up to avoid getting caught. And lone wolves have a history of producing more casualties. That includes the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Timothy McVeigh, a decorated Iraq war veteran and anti-government extremist, killed 168 people, including 19 children. Carol Rivas says to prevent these acts of terrorism, we need to help people gradually discern fact from the wealth of misinformation that's out there.
0: I don't think that um, you can kind of unravel the whole thing at all at once. But you can poke holes, right? Like you can poke a hole in that water balloon and it begins to leak.
5: She says we also need to talk about where our government systems are failing us and find ways to fix them together so these conspiracies and extremists don't exploit them for their own gain. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck.
1: KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find this and other stories at KUNC.org.
3: You're listening to the Colorado Edition from KUNC. Last week was the deadliest seven-day period for avalanche deaths in the U.S. in more than a century. A new report from the Colorado Avalanche Information Center provides details on the massive slide near Silverton that killed three backcountry travelers on February 1st. Jason Blevins has written about this for the Colorado Sun, and he joins us now. Jason, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me, Henry.
3: So at least 15 people have died in the last week across the U.S. in avalanches. This includes three backcountry skiers who were killed on February 1st here in Colorado's San Juan Mountains and a slide that killed four skiers in Utah over the weekend. Tell us about the current conditions. Why is the avalanche danger so high right now?
2: We have this sort of a persistent weak layer down deep in the snowpack. So imagine... All that snow that we got, say in November and December, which wasn't a lot actually, but it was enough to fall. And then those cold nights kind of they rot the snow. They turn that snow into facets, multi-angled snow crystals that don't bond well with other snow. So when they have new snow fall on top of those crystals, that's a weak layer down there. And that new snow wants to shed off in giant slabs. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing soft slab avalanches, persistent slab avalanches, these kind of, you know, that lower level snowpack is a weak layer and it's being stressed by the new snowfall that's coming in these recent weeks.
3: The February 1st avalanche at South Lookout Mountain is the deadliest in Colorado in eight years. On Sunday, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center released a report detailing what went wrong there. What did it say? Did it mention the snowpack?
2: Oh, yeah. There, you know, there's a soft slab avalanche and you know those those valves were on a, a pretty gentle slope, a 25 degree slope, and you usually don't see avalanches, you know, and, and happen, say, on angles uh, less than 30 degrees. But there was some communication missteps that C A I C pointed out and illustrated that uh, you know maybe they didn't know for sure where they were supposed to be meeting up and regrouping and reassessing their plan and uh they they found themselves in a train trap a gully at the bottom of a big um big slope and that released on them and train traps are uh scary features in avalanche train they're sort of hard to get out of and when they do fill up with snow in an avalanche even a small one the snow can pile up very deep and it makes it difficult for a rescue so that's sort of the scenario that they described in that report the Four men were caught and one was dug up and three uh, were buried very deeply.
3: Well, Jason, for anyone who may not be super familiar with your work, you obviously cover the backcountry, but you're also a participant in many things involving the backcountry. And I know you recently took a course called Decision-Making in Avalanche Terrain. Tell us about why you decided to take this class and, and what you learned from it that you think is important for us to understand.
2: This is the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education. They offer this level one for, you know, sort of an introduction to backcountry travel. I took the same course in the late 90s, and it was not entitled decision-making and avalanche training. We spent a lot of time digging snow pits, looking at that layer, making sure we could identify those faceted crystals. Now, those classes, it has more to do with psychology. It has to do with group decision-making. It has to do with... Creating a process for making safe decisions in the backcountry and really analyzing what your plan is, planning out a route and making sure that your group is, is comfortable with your plan and making sure that you know you're staying out of avalanche train. And if you are exposing yourself to avalanche train, how can you mitigate that risk? So it's really about creating processes and systems for making better decisions in the backcountry. If you come up to a giant meadow and it turns out it's over 30 degrees, you really need to look at you know, what your plan is and what you, why you're going in there, and what's influencing your decision. And it's kind of an interesting new approach to decision-making in the backcountry and that it really has more to do with, say, psychology and group dynamics and expert halos and all these different factors and human behavior that come into decision-making more so than snow science the way it used to be back, you know, 20 years ago. So I think everyone should take a level one. If you ski in the backcountry, it's very important to kind of get familiar with those sort of processes and make sure that you're, you know, have the ability to really analyze your decision making in the backcountry.
3: You mentioned the, the way the courses kind of were back in the 90s, more science focused and, and how that's changed over time. Has that changed because we've kind of seen avalanche incidences and deaths in the last couple decades that haven't been based on their knowledge of snow science, but rather poor decision-making?
2: Yeah, I got a really good friend, sort of a mentor in the backcountry. who always says, no one has died from misidentifying a snow crystal. You know, what we're seeing now, you know, we could take this back to Tunnel Creek, we could take it back to the 2013 avalanche to Sheep Creek that killed five. You know, these are people that know snow science pretty well. Um, You know, they're familiar with the avalanche trade. And it it we start to sort of focus back on on what what led them into that terrain, what was the decision making process so that's where you know, we're seeing pretty you know knowledgeable and experienced people dying in the backcountry like we did on Oprah Pass the other day and now we're it's just become super overwhelming on on you know the decision making and who is who's making the these decisions and how are they making these decisions? so it's really moved a good bit around from, you know, snow science.
3: Jason Blevins is a reporter for The Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to his reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Jason, thanks as always for joining us.
2: Thanks a lot, Henry.
1: Last October, some paleontologists from Denver found treasure hidden in four cardboard boxes held together with yellowed packing tape. As KUNC's Ray Solomon reports, they were nearly overflowing with bits and pieces of one of Colorado's most famous dinosaurs.
7: Now you could say that the story of Pops the Triceratops, and those boxes full of him, began nearly 40 years ago. February of
6: 1982.
7: Emmett Evanoff is a professor of geology at the University of Northern Colorado. Back in grad school, he was friends with a guy named Ken Carpenter, who went on to have a storied career in paleontology. One day, Carpenter asked Evanoff for a hand in the field. They went to a site northeast of Greeley to poke around for microfossils.
6: Ken's kind of a funny guy. He uh, is very serious when he's out in the field, really intense, and he's looking around. He doesn't get really excited. I was watching Ken, and all of a sudden he stopped, He looked down and he started jumping around, and I thought, hmm, Ken found something. It was the tip of
7: the frill of the most complete skull of any horned dinosaur ever found in the state. So it might be more accurate to say that the story really began more than 68 million years ago.
6: Think of Greeley underneath water. Of course, the whole state of Colorado was underwater. And then slowly, uh, we ended up with lowland rivers in the area. And that's where the deposits of the dinosaurs occurred.
7: This is the last part of the Cretaceous period, or the very tail end of the very long age of the dinosaurs.
6: So we sat there for an hour or two, just cleaning it up and getting it exposed at the surface on that on that day.
4: And then a couple of days later, they came back with a huge truck and unearthed the dinosaur and took it away.
7: Terry Demoni now lives in Greeley. Back in '82, her father, Sonny Mappelli owned the land where the fossil was found.
4: They didn't tell them that they were coming, that they found a dinosaur head, so they just came back and took it. And when my dad heard what happened, he wanted it back.
7: But Sonny was a civic-minded guy, a businessman and former state senator who took a lot of pride in his adopted community in northern Colorado. So he donated the skull to county leaders.
4: And he wanted it to stay here so that Other children and families could all learn about it and actually have something here in Weld County.
7: Triceratops t-shirts were printed for the occasion. There was even a public contest to name it. Pops ultimately won out. And a declaration making it the official Weld County fossil. Communications Director Jennifer Finch says the donation came with just one condition.
5: That that fossil would remain in Weld County in a county building so that's all the public could come in and see it.
7: And that's how Pops ended up behind glass in the fluorescent-lit lobby of the Weld County Administrative Building.
5: In a not-so-dignified way, it was how we told people where the restrooms were, because we tell them, go out to the lobby, (laughs) and they're right by the dinosaur.
7: (laughs) Decades later, Pops' glory had faded. The 1980s-era epoxies holding him together were discolored. He had never been fully restored, and the whole display was sorely out of date. That's where Joe Sertich enters the story. He used to visit Pops when he was an undergrad studying paleontology at Colorado State University.
6: The skeleton and skull of Pops were known by paleontologists for decades. So it's kind of been this unicorn of a dinosaur that's out there that we know is significant.
7: Dr. Surtich is now curator of dinosaurs at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Even then, he had his doubts if Pops was really a triceratops at all. For one, the skull was small. It was the size of a juvenile. But...
6: As you look a little closer, you can tell from the texture of the bone that it's an adult.
7: And then there's the Laramie rock formation that it came out of. It's about two million years older than other triceratops specimens.
6: But no one's had access to study because uh, it was in this kind of gray area between museums and hiding up in a public facility.
7: So in 2018, he reached out to Jennifer Finch who helped arrange a deal. They would study Pops in Denver and then bring him back to Weld County, expertly cleaned and restored. The team came up to take measurements last October, and that's when they found those four boxes. Inside, there were pieces of bone that helped complete the skull. There were other parts too, like vertebrae and pieces of tailbone.
6: So we have Pops in every corner of the lab right now.
7: Back in the fossil lab, preparator Salvador Bastian bends over the skull with an air scribe. It's sort of like a tiny air-powered jackhammer.
6: So we're just using this to remove the plaster cleanly from the fossil
2: so that we can see all of the actual bone and study the true shape of what this animal would look like in life. And so far,
7: they've uncovered a little nub of bone that gives this nearly 40-year-old story, or is it a 68-million-year-old story, new life.
6: This is a weird flange in the nostril.
7: The shape of that flange suggests that Dr. Sertage is right. The Weld triceratops isn't a triceratops at all.
6: This big, wide, flat flange is something that you see in Eotriceratops, but not so much in a true triceratops.
7: The team can't definitively identify Pops until they've finished reconstructing the skull, but they just might have a whole new species on their hands.
6: There are a couple of pages currently missing from that story. Um, at different time intervals. And this is one of those missing pages. So for the first time, we can look at what the world was like 68 or 69 million years ago here in Colorado.
7: It will take Dr. Sertich and his team a few more months to finish the restoration. They'll make casts of the skull and publish their findings. Then Pops will be returned to Weld County. Jennifer Finch is looking forward to that day.
5: The skull may come back actually a bit bigger than when it left. And if that's the case, we may have to talk about getting a different display case.
7: And maybe a new location, she says, further away from the bathrooms. Ray Solomon, KUNC.
3: That's our show for today. On the next Colorado Edition, although many people can't wait to get the COVID-19 vaccine, there are plenty of others who are planning to say no. We'll hear from a state task force working to change minds one person at a time. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
1: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Adam Reyes, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
5: Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.